Where do we start this? And the answer doesn't matter. Help. We're having a good time. Right. <laughs> he couldn't wait to get in here. You need sales balls to make sales calls. Sure. I'm tweeting that puppy. <laughs> okay. Welcome to the Seller Die Podcast. We're your hosts, Jeffrey and Jen Gittimer. I'm the author of The Little Red Book of Selling and 15 other best-selling books and the creator of the seven-figure sales formula program. I grew up in Philadelphia, sold in New York City, but was smart enough to move to Charlotte, North Carolina. And I'm the author of Sales in the New York Minute and creator of Breakthrough Business Babe Community. Fun fact, I'm obsessed with our dogs and consider them humans. If you have a dog, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Sell or Die is for sales professionals, salespeople, sales managers, entrepreneurs, and business owners who want to sell more at full price, earn loyalty, and have an unlimited stream of referrals. Every single episode is going to give you real-world, easy-to-implement solutions so that you can get your calls returned, your proposals read and acted on, all while creating relationships that you can take all the way to the bank. It's time to sell or die. All right, die hard. At 22, Mary started with a Fortune 1000 payroll HR company at just $13 an hour in an admin role, but quickly acquired the skills and training required to advance into mid-market SaaS sales. She rapidly found success by listening to her clients and always solving their needs, putting their agenda before hers. Even when her sales approach was the direct inverse of corporate, she knew in her heart what was right, and she did the job with integrity and grit, driving results for both Mary and her clients. With multiple number one finishes and millions in revenue sold, she left in 2011 to become a business strategist for entrepreneurs and founded Butterfly Creative, LLC. Her vision expanded into youth entrepreneurship education and eventually went back to her payroll HR company serving larger, more complex prospective clients in 2014. She left in 2017 after two top 25 and one top 10 finish and millions more sold. Mary returned as CEO to her firm, Butterfly Creative LLC, rebranded as Sales BQ, not EQ, be like boy Q, now 10 team members strong, and their one driving goal is to help CEOs avoid losing what many CEOs lost on bad sales hires. Over $1 million as a result of no sales infrastructure, bad hires, and lack of time to manage. BQ is the behavioral quotient, like behavioral intelligence. Their work is based on uncovering the core selling competencies and sales DNA of the reps and managers they work with, developing high growth strategies and implementing them with the CEO until the plans are profitable. In 2018, this SBQ team helped over 30 companies reach new levels of profitability. And now Mary is here to help you reach new levels of profitability. Welcome. Wait, hold on a second. (laughs) I think we're out of time, right? That was the longest intro ever. Holy smokes. Here's what's going to happen. Mary, you can save this for when you're dead. Someone can read that as your eulogy. Holy moly, that was long. 
Mary, we're glad you're here. Thanks for yeah. joining us today. Uh, psyched to be here. I'm on with a legend. My week is going to be done. I could just put a bow on my whole career after this. Oh, cool. <laughs> cool. So in the preamble to this, you were kind of telling us a little bit of your history and how you became a number one rep. Tell us, tell us all about that. Yeah, people want to know how you became number one and specifically what are some of the actions that it took? Yeah, as my 30-minute bio alluded to, that in the first two years of my professional career, I was an admin. I supported a mid-market sales team of eight salespeople, and I happened to report to the number one sales manager in the country. And he had worked there for over a decade. The guy was brilliant, and he had a huge heart. Two years, I got to study some of my favorites like Brian Tracy, and I took a couple Dale Carnegie classes. And of course, there's some amazing sales books out there, yours included, that give reps really great foundational understanding. So I took it upon myself to read some of those great sales books. Fast forward two years, I get into this role and I'm scared to death because two years of theory and sitting on the bench and watching other people sell, it's great to absorb all the knowledge. But that first time I had to pick up the phone, I mean, I, I might as well just peed my pants. I was sweating. I thought, what do I do? I have no clue. I went into my sales manager's office and the look on his face was, you have to be kidding me. Two years, we get you to this point and you're just going to be stuck. No, I'm not going to. He instructed me to call 10 of our clients. He said, call 10 clients and ask them these three questions. Number one, why did you choose our product or service? Number two, why are you still a client? Even when the competition comes knocking on the door and three, if you could just come up with one big game statement, the ROI statement, how is your life better? Because you work with us. And that was my first lesson in getting out of my head that I was to show up and tell people about product services, technology, that I was actually supposed to have a conversation about how I solved their problems and made their life better. Those 10 phone calls set the stage for me. When I started telemarketing and having sales meetings, I quickly realized that sales is uncomfortable and it felt like high pressure and I didn't like it. What I did like is being a complex problem solver. What's crazy is you hear so many people talk about that, right? How many people say, all the sales is is solving problems, but yet you go on the sales meeting and then you listen to the rep throw up for 45 minutes talking about themselves and as many sales trainers as it's going to take to say, don't do that. It still happens all the time. So for me, it was really built out of fear because the way I was conditioned growing up, I grew up in a pretty crazy household some abuse and neglect and other things. But because of that, I cared what people thought about me. And I had a, a huge fear of disappointment. And I always wanted to perform and to impress. And what I learned in sales is that you can actually do that by solving people's problems and doing a really great job and doing right by them. And then they love you. And then they write you a check to make that happen. And then you get a cut of that check and then you get awards and recognition. And holy cow, I fought for years trying to be recognized. And I was able to earn that through a high-performing sales career. Bottom line, I showed up differently than everybody on my team. I was hungry. I cared. I wanted to win. I was so competitive. And I, every day I was fueled by refreshing my dashboard on my screen to see where I was nationwide on the rankings. I wouldn't let anyone get close to me. And if somebody was inching close, I don't care how late I had to stay that night, making calls, sending emails, being on LinkedIn to get the job done. There's a component of that high performing 
salesperson that we call BQ. That's the behavioral quotient. It's the get up and go. It's the execution. It's doing whatever it takes ethically to succeed. And I know that that is a common trait with high performing salespeople. Sales is fun. Sales is not a job. Sales is this thrill that you get to partake in and experience because you did all the right things to get the yes. And then that client loves you. For me, that's what drives me. Wow. Anything, uh, passionate about it? <laughs> yeah, I have no passion. And in fact, I've been instructed to have more enthusiasm when I do interviews. Yeah, like, okay, what? Cool. Uh, <laughs> so let me throw a couple of things at you. When you have these characteristics, and I'm, I'm going to share with you something, um, maybe now, maybe off the record. Um, I interviewed the number one salesperson at Cintas. Uh, 4,000 salespeople, and she was number one in her second year and third year. So it wasn't a fluke. But she did not know her own characteristics until I drug them out of her. Like, she just did it naturally and didn't really have an understanding of what pushed her to that front. And this is before people had a dashboard. So she didn't know where she was she literally had to be told every week or every month where she was. Now, when you hit number one out of a couple thousand people, it's an accomplishment. It's not luck. Well, you work your ass off to get lucky. <laughs> Have you ever like um, documented your characteristics for what it took you to get there? I have. I, my first year of sales, my quota was 150000 I sold 758,000 in my first year. Hold which on. Was, Say yeah. that again. Hold on. Be more specific, too. Your first year was how much? The quota was 150,000, and I sold 758,000. Wow. That was more than number two and three combined yeah. on the rankings. And that for me was the glory number instead of just that top line number. I wanted to do it with style points. I knew about halfway through the year that I was trending and I had a decision. I could pull my foot off the gas, right? I could just say, look, I really front loaded the year. Now I can take a lot of vacations and lay out by the pool, but I didn't do that. I actually worked harder because I thought, well, I've already done this in six months. What can I really do? And yeah. so I just dialed it up even more. But that was, so the VP of sales at the time, it was a $300 million division of a $1.7 billion company. And it was the mid-market division, which was the redheaded stepchild of the organization because they were known for serving small business, fewer than 20 employees. And our mid-market segment was 50 to 5,000 employees. They didn't have the sales playbook. They didn't know how to replicate this type of performance. They mm -hmm. flew me out to corporate. They asked how we did it. To answer your question, I did not know the characteristics inside of myself either. So like a, I'll say like a fool, but really it was just uh, sweet ignorance. I was sitting there mapping out my sales process and my methodology. I was looking at the infrastructure I had built, the systems I had built to hold myself accountable so that it was repeatable. But what I was missing was the fact that sales just comes natural to me and I love it and I love it and I get out of bed and I can't wait to start my day and to have sales conversations and win. And that's the fueling source. So when I am able to put on paper, that will help some people. 
And it did. The playbook that we were able to implement helped a lot of people's performance increase. But then they said, we want more. So they couldn't figure out what the asterisk was. They started flying people out to Denver. They said, go ride in the field with Mary and see what you take away from it. Most salespeople couldn't even last a day. They wanted to know when they could get a break. They wanted to know when we were going to stop and eat lunch. They wanted to know when we were, I mean, I'm thinking you do that. No, I pack my lunch. It's in my car. I eat it while I'm driving. I mean, I'm doing telemarketing with my printed out call list in between meetings. What are you doing? Like surfing the internet? Like I didn't have Facebook. I didn't have social media. I just had LinkedIn. But for me, it's like when I'm working, I'm on. And so most salespeople couldn't even hang for the whole day, let alone the two or three days that they were riding with me. And that's where we determined that that BQ, that behavioral quotient was a huge part of it. But really, to your point, there's the passion, enthusiasm and conviction that's really fueled by this innate desire of hating to lose that I'm going to do whatever it takes to win. That's how I'm wired. And so... Obviously, in some of that, you're not able to transfer it. No. Now, uh, I want to ask you a very specific question. Did you only love sales or did you love sales for the company that you were working for and love the product as much as you loved your own passion? (sighs) Good thought-provoking question here. I never had a professional job before that one. It's the only thing I ever knew. So I was actually in love with selling payroll services. And I saw how it changed the lives of the people that I sold it to, how much more efficient they were, that it was a breath of fresh air. They were producing more, their profitability and productivity was better. And I had raving fans. And in fact, the reason why I left in 2011 is because the service model had changed, the technology had become extremely outdated and the competition was absolutely crushing us. And it it was almost, um, it was just very difficult. The tone of the sales conversations had changed and I no longer believed that what I was selling was the right solution. I knew that there were better products and services and that's why I left. So integrity had something to do with it as well. Yes. And I I knew when I started to feel sick that I was getting money and my clients' lives were not good. Implementation was messy. The uh, technology was failing. Service team wasn't returning calls, not to their fault. It's just when a company grows so fast, this is so common. Enterprises become so big. They don't always have time to build the ship appropriately. And, And so the service team, they were my friends. They're doing the best they could with it, but we just couldn't keep up. And so no, integrity wise, I couldn't sell it anymore. I mean, I could and make a lot of money, but that wasn't fair to me. I needed to switch and do something where people's lives would be better because I was in it. Way to go. Yeah, way to go. So so you founded this company based on BQ. Talk to us about what that is and how it's different than EQ. There's so many acronyms out there. Yeah. Yes. Well, let's talk about it. I have I have two ways to explain BQ. The first one is to familiarize the audience with the concept of IQ, EQ, BQ. All three are required to be great in sales. But what I find is without BQ, even if you have the other two, you can't be successful. And here's why. IQ, that's your intellectual intelligence. It's also what I would lump into this category is just your knowledge, your knowledge set. Are you credible in front of the buyer? Do you know your product and service inside and out? Do you understand the industry? Do you get the marketplace? Do you truly know where your product or service differentiates 
from the competition, either when you're going head to head or it's a position where you're selling against an incumbent. Do you truly know where you're different or are you just showing up and saying, well, we're better, faster, cheaper, smarter, sign here. That's a lie. Everyone's saying that. Then when you look at emotional intelligence, bringing in the EQ factor of your own emotional self-awareness and also being able to identify the emotions of others. When people spend money, it's an emotional situation. When you are a great salesperson and you do great discovery, meaning your questions really identify pain points and problems and you get your prospect to open up, that brings them into an emotional state. That's where the emotional buy-in happens in the sales conversation. As a result of that, you need to be emotionally self-aware and understand where to take the conversation and how to pivot so that you're emotionally connecting and getting that buyer down the emotional path. The third part would be the BQ, behavioral intelligence, and we've we've brushed on that a little bit. It's all about the execution. And in sales, if we're not organized, if we're not put together with a plan on how we're going to show up for every single day with backup plans, because, you know, meetings cancel, things change, a deal you had a verbal commit on falls through, deals push, your quota doesn't push when your deals push to next quarter, FYI. So being set and prepared with your backup plans. And then I always thought, why would I sell twice as many prospects if I could just be twice as good on the one I already had in order to hit my results? And so I had one of the highest close rates in the company, but that comes with being prepared, doing research, walking into your meeting to relieve zero room for them to be considering competition. It's to set yourself apart. And so that BQ, there's a thousand things to do on every single daily basis to show up and execute and perform. So you can have great IQ and EQ, but if you don't have the BQ component, what are you doing? It's like a company who has a great product or service, but they can't market themselves. If nobody knows about it, no one's going to buy it. So it's a very similar setup here. So that's one way to look at BQ. We've seen it time and time again. Businesses are losing sales because of bad training. Think about it. Who loves the online training at their organization? Answer, just about no one. It's a hassle to create and distribute. It's often tedious to take. And that's because you have to cobble together authoring apps, learning management systems, and uneditable third-party content that looks like it's from the 1990s. And none of these work nicely together. So what do you do when you're an expert in sales, but not in training? You turn to rise.com, the online training system that your sales team will love. Rise.com is an all-in-one system that makes online training easy to create, enjoyable to take, and simple to manage. Not only can you create, distribute, and analyze sales training easily in Rise.com, you also get tons of training content that's beautiful, well-researched, and enjoyable for learners. Help your team succeed with useful product guides, insightful marketing information, and a safe environment to practice real-world scenarios. Are you ready to train your sales team better? Start a free 30-day trial at Rise.com slash sell or die. In the BQ part of it, what role does your love and passion play in its successful execution? Yeah, perfect segue. The second way that we look at BQ, and this will answer your question, is if you can imagine a wheel for me right now, 
right, and at I'll the top. Hold on, is it round? Yes, that okay. kind. Right. Yes, perfect. <laughs> there are four sections of this wheel. At the top is how you think. That's your mental mindset. This is what is going to start fueling that BQ. So your mental mindset, when a fact or piece of information comes into your mind, we as human beings, we tell ourselves a story about it. And that story that we tell ourselves will then trigger our emotional state. And that emotional state will dictate our actions. And then the actions, of course, yield performance. And those are the four areas, how you think, how you feel, how you act, and how you perform. When you look at somebody who naturally, like me, is a high optimist, full of passion and enthusiasm, I'm naturally in a high performance state. My emotional mechanisms with inside of me will automatically be triggered when I see a problem, I get excited about how I'm going to solve it and do something great with it. When something brings me down, I immediately turn it around. Or if a piece of information that necessarily isn't great, like I had a meeting cancel. When you look at the top of the BQ wheel, how you think. If a meeting cancels, that's data that enters your mind. You have an option of what story you're going to tell yourself, which will trigger your emotional state. I can say, oh, woe is me. My manager is going to be so mad. Now I'm not going to hit my quota. This sucks. They, this isn't my fault, right? We could, we could go into the wrong direction, which will then dictate our actions because we're in a negative emotional state. For me, that's going to trigger me to say, well, then I am now in high gear to replace that meeting and figure out what revenue is replacing that. And I'm going to get on it. So my emotional state, all of a sudden, I feel that numb, tingly excitement of flooding my body of that fight or flight. Like I got to get on it. I got to get it done. I'm going to win. I'm not going to lose. And that's my emotional state, which will then trigger my actions that yield then the performance. I think it's so interesting because like anything like that, customer cancels the meeting. It's just data. And then how we think about it and how we react to it is all from the context we give it and the interpretation we give it. It's emotional data. It's not just data. It's well, not, we make it emotional as human no, no, beings. It's not data without feeling, though. When you, when you have that data in front of you, it triggers either, oh, shit, or, oh, great. Yes, yes. So it's emotion either way. And... And but, but most people don't realize that they get to choose which way it's going to, which emotion they're going to use with it. That's true. So Mary obviously chose the, fuck it, I'm going to go get another one. A hundred percent. Every time. I had deals that I lost in the 11th hour of implementation, meaning the deal was already won. The contract was signed. We're, we're two and a half months through implementation. We're in the 11th hour for a go live date and the, it completely falls apart and doesn't run. Does that feel horrible? Yeah. Do I need a day to grieve that and probably like not get out of bed and be mad at the world? Sure. We need to process emotions. I'm not a robot. I have them, but it's my determination on what I'm going to do with that in my getup from that moment. How do I get back up? And then also, how do I learn from that? Because as much as I would love to have a big head and run around and say, none of that was my fault and it was all operations, bottom line is there are always things that we could be doing better. And so it was dissecting the situation and learning what steps did I miss? What could I have done? And that process is so helpful, at least it was for me, because then I could consciously avoid things like that happening again in the future because when it sucks that bad and hurts that bad, I don't want to go through that again. And so I try to be better the next time around. 
I want to talk more about behavioral quotient. So yeah. Was, yeah. Are you born with it or is it something you learn over time? I think when we talk about what people are bored with and what they're not, the way that I see it is um, I'm not a like genetic scientist or whatever. So I don't really know what behaviors are predetermined, but I do believe that how you're raised shapes you. And what I have seen with my own upbringing is the survival mode that I learned for so many years. I carried that into a sales profession and the two actually happened to go hand in hand. Um, As long as you've got the good ethical backing behind it, I think that it really fueled the way that I have performed in a sales career. I would say that the way that you are shaped and molded as a child. Now, With that, I do know that some of my qualities, I have had them since I was very, very, very little. I'm very close in age to my brother. And as a child, I would, I'm the baby of the family. I couldn't let him do things before me. And that means I had to ride my bike first. I had to learn how to pump my legs on the swing before him. If he built a masterpiece out of blocks and I didn't do it first, I had to knock it down. So there was no evidence that he was good at what he did because I had to be the best. And so, and I was always positioning myself against my brother. And so if I did something wrong, I strategically blamed him and I framed him to always get him in trouble. And so I think that I truly was born with this natural competitiveness, but I'm not sure how sound like it. <laughs> I'm horrible. And now I have a three and a half year old son in it, and he is just like my husband. And I thank Jesus every day for that because I could not raise a mini Mary. I'd lose it. So anyway, my son is like a heart of gold, just like my husband. But oh. I look at how much of that was fostered and fueled. Also with my personality, just tell me I can't and then watch me. That's what I love the most is that when people say I can't do it or I get pushed down or I'm underestimated, that's when I really flourish. And I think that that was a product of how I was raised. Yeah. So it's a learned value over time. It is. And I also was supporting myself at 15 years old and the value of earning money I learned the hard way because I had zero and my life depended on it. And learning that at 15 years old, where I was, my brain still developing, my common sense, the the ability of who am I going to be in this world was being molded and shaped. I learned very early how to fight for the dollar and be responsible. Well, I say be responsible with it. Let me tell you, when I was 25 and I had two houses and two cars and a three-day weekend and traveling all over the United States... Okay. I may have spent a little bit too much, but for the most part, I didn't have any debt. (laughs) That's cool. That's That's awesome. Um, Did you buy your properties in Denver? I did. Cool. Yeah. Way to go. Um, That's a big way to go. I, but I, I think that you can, you know, you did it based on what you felt was right for you and what you felt was fair for you. You rewarded yourself. What's wrong with that? You know, I did. And I think that's part of figuring out who you are in your 20s. And I had a lot of exploring during that time. And for me, just trying to identify who I was, because I had its identity through my professional work, because I worked like, I don't know, 100 hours a week. That was my identity and work hard, play hard. But then I started to realize there was a lot more to life than that. And I'm very thankful for the humbling experiences that pulled me into where I am now. But I enjoyed it. I liked working hard. I liked being number one. I liked having a lot of money. I liked buying cars and 
driving around with the top down and taking my girlfriends with me. I liked the status. And then thankfully in my thirties, I'm like, Oh wait, there's a lot more to life. And now I'm living a much uh, more joyous life than I had previously. Cool. More fulfilled. (laughs) Much. (laughs) So before we go, what would you say to someone who's trying to become number one, whether they own their own business and they want to figure out how to sell their heart out or they're a salesperson on a huge team and want to be that number one person. I, my advice is what I told myself every day and this may or may not work for people. Take it. If you love it, leave it. If you hate it, just do right by the person that you're serving. That's it. When I removed my agenda and I put everyone else first, the numbers exploded in all the right ways. When my head was on straight of why was I doing this? Because the buyer, the prospect, they can sniff it out. They know what your perceived self-interest is. They can smell your agenda. And if you're going for you first, you'll always be up against this boom, boom, like hitting that ceiling because it's all about you. When I look at how I transitioned to that in my career and saying, I'm here to serve, solve people's problems, and I'm going to put forth every ounce of energy that I have to do this and do right by others. That's when the floodgates opened to success. And so when people hear that, just interpret it the way that it's meant to be heard for you, because I think that that'll cause some reflection to see where you might be trying to drive your own agenda and realizing if you do right by other people, you will be rewarded for that. But diehards understand this. Mary spent years building herself first, that when she went out to serve other people, it wasn't a sacrificial serve. It was a conditioned serve that came from her heart, not from her greed. And that's a a critical element in moving forward in any of these emotional quotients. I love the way that you said that, and it's 100% correct. It's removing the greed out of it, but trust me, I didn't work for free. I, I, I wasn't running a nonprofit. There's work that I do in my personal life where I serve for no return. Professionally, I am going to provide something of tremendous value and I'm going to ask to be compensated for that work because that is what I've signed up to do for a living with the product or service that I represent and I sell. But I've taken it upon myself in every sales profession that I've had to be knowledgeable and credible and understand my buyer so that they get a plus service through the process so that what they are assigning a dollar value to, I never have to discount and I have a super high close rate to get there. So here's the deal, diehards. The value has to exceed the price or you can't close as well as you can if the value exceeds the price. And Mary is value excessive. And the people obviously know that. And that's what causes that that she can blame her success on her value proposition. I like that. Jenny, anything else? We That's probably talk? the only blame she'll ever have. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> she seems to take responsibility for everything yeah. else in life. You've been a pretty damn good guest, Mary. <laughs> yeah, this was awesome. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, this is a dream come true. I didn't lie earlier. I'm now going to officially retire because I could cross this off of my list that I was on your show. (laughs) (laughs) Very cool. cool. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to Sell or Die. We hope that this episode has helped you transform the way you think, given you new ideas and provided you a new perspective on the sales and business challenges that you face every day. 
so you can get out there and win the customer all the way to the bank. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a second to rate and review. Each review helps us help more people just like you make a difference in this world. Don't forget to take a screenshot, share it in your Instagram stories and tag us at Jeffrey Gittimer and at Jen Gittimer. See See you you next week. week.